Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. I'm thrilled to introduce today's episode with Paul Rudd. Comedy star, action hero, Kansas City Chiefs fan, and undisputed king of Hot Ones. Seriously, if you don't know what that refers to, go and check it out on YouTube. Rudd's career began in the early 90s, and since then he's appeared in hit comedy after hit, from Clueless to Anchorman to Knocked Up. He's delivered star turns in shows like Friends and Parks and Recreation. His flawless comedic timing and instinct for capturing the frustrations of the everyman has made audiences love him, cringe for him, and root for him. And then in his 40s, he became a Marvel superstar, stepping into the role of Ant-Man. In this conversation, we talk about his new comedy series, Living With Yourself, in which Rudd plays Miles, a man who undergoes a novel treatment to become a better person and finds he's been replaced by a new and improved version of himself. We also talk about his work with Judd Apatow, what it was like entering the Marvel world and navigating the fame that comes with it, his secret bar, and his deep love of karaoke. Hi, guys. You just interrupted my sports conversation with Paul Rudd, who came to uh, visit me at Present Company today. Great to see you. It's great to see you. Yes, I am sad about that game last week, but you guys are still number one. We are. We are The, the Chiefs are still number one for this week, and let's, let's hope— uh, they show up in Mexico City and take down the Chargers, and then they're able I to— I hate the Chargers. Um, I mean, my Broncos are last, yeah. so um, I would have to say that I want anybody to beat the Chargers, so I will be a Kansas City fan until the end. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'll tell you we'll that. We'll take I'm, it. I'm rooting for you. You know, I never knew that your parents were English, mm. and I feel like I've known— I, I feel like I've known you or been around you or in this sphere for a long time, and mm-hmm. I never knew that because yeah. you seem so all-American to me. I am a bit of a mutt. My parents were both from London, and I was born in the, in the East Coast, but you know, I then moved to California. I moved around a bunch of places. I've spent a lot of time in England and, uh, and then the Midwest for you know a good chunk of my adolescence but you're you're like apple pie and chevrolet like you're that guy it's funny with the baseball and the football and sports i mean did that bump up against your parents at all were they like why don't you like cricket no my dad you know loved he loved baseball as a kid he left england he was young he was about 10 years old and so he moved to he was in patterson new jersey and he was a big yeah and a big brooklyn dodgers fan and he loved Duke Snyder, was his favorite mm-hmm. player growing up, and he loved the Dodgers. And then he was one of those kids that had their heart broken when they moved to Los Angeles. And it kind of ruined sports for him in a way. And so when I was growing up, um, as a kid, I really kind of took to sports. I thought it was fun to watch. And then I just fell out of it for a good chunk of my uh 
like the middle school years and even into high school. And I think that I rediscovered a love of sports f- probably uh, around, around college and it, really into my 20s. And it's grown now because my need for drama and um, and all of that has it's it's that's taken pole position now that i work in the entertainment industry it seems as if i get that you know that need fed from movies and television less than i do from sports and with sports the great thing is is you just you don't know how it's going to end and sometimes you watch a show or a movie and you kind of do i know it is it's like that that's why i love sports is because any given sunday anything can happen and you don't and it isn't. There's not an editor, director, costumer. It's just like it's it, an authentic experience. It is. You're right. And it brings people together. Like it's. It might be the only thing, really, truly, like the only thing that seems to uh, beat out political divide, <laughs> divisions, uh, red and blue, or whatever it is that you do for a living and your social economic class you could be a neurosurgeon or you could be you know uh somebody just working for the city or whatever and but you root for the same team you're on an equal playing field and uh and you know people can converse about sports and the love of a team and uh and that's what wins out i don't think that exists with other things mm-hmm. it's great uh all right well let's talk about you, which I know is your favorite subject. <laughs> oh, gosh, please, please, can we? <laughs> <laughs> and there's two of you, actually, for this. I'm like, why did he do this? What what, what drew him to this show? Uh, which is Living With Yourself, which is excellent. Thank uh, you. And I love, first of all, it's a, it's a perfect part for you because it's the two sides of, obviously, Paul Rudd and, and uh, you're great in both of them and, and the audience is so drawn in to watching which one is it and the clues and whatnot. But I love your co-star. Yeah, She's she, amazing. She's Please great. pronounce her name. Ashling. Ashling is a superstar. Ashling B. She's she was really great. terrific. A really funny comedian. She does stand up and, and uh, you know, she's a great comic, but she's also a really deft actor and she's really great at conveying uh, all of the pain underneath and um, it was a real pleasure to get mm-hmm. to work with her. Yeah, no, that's a great bit of casting. How did you come to get the script and decide that you were going to go into television again and take this on? Well, um, my agent sent me the scripts and it was unique in that they were all written normally with uh, you know, a show or a limited series or whatever it is that that, uh, you, you, that you get one or two with an explanation of where it's going to go. And so here were these eight scripts that were... Uh, written and rewritten and complex and uh, had a real economy of language. I just got sucked into it right away. And uh, I thought that's a good sign. You know, I don't want to put these down. It's a bit like binge watching something Mm -hmm. because as soon as one episode ended, I couldn't wait to get to the next one. It's like reading a good book. And uh, there were many things about it that were appealing you know, the first, obviously, being this chance I would have to play two parts, which is, for an actor, a dream and a unique experience after doing this for a while. It was something new, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. really exciting. But that wouldn't have been the thing to 
take it over the finish line if it if it wasn't for um or just really smart writing and thematically a really interesting take on depression and uh being the best versions of ourselves and marriage and and you know just the life themes i all, all of it seemed to work for me it, every box was checked yeah it's really dark and light at the same time which i really enjoyed and i like you how you read it i watched it in two two times right yeah. i couldn't i was like basically my own life got in the way and then i had to watch it uh again another time all the way through like half and half right it's just you didn't want to end. yeah it was it was quick you know and 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 i also liked that it was unique it, i didn't just from a genre oh you didn't know what was going to happen I, I didn't know what was going to happen yeah. well i didn't know what was going to happen and i thought it was funny but dark um and then there was this science fiction element to it, and there were parts of it that were m- moving and very dramatic. And I thought, well, this is this is a really interesting tone, and I, it made me think of Black Mirror, honestly, mm-hmm. more than anything else. And um, as far as you saying you don't know what's going to happen, that is very true because as I was reading it, I was enjoying it, but I thought this is just going to stress me out because. It's, I think, oh, is this going to be one of those shows that's predicated uh, on this secret? And it it's stressful the entire time until you get to the last episode when the shoe drops and everyone finds out what's going on. And that happened r- real quick. That was yeah. like an episode yeah. two or three. Uh, all of a sudden, people know what's going on. And when I read that, I really sat up in my chair and went, whoa, now I'm even more interested how are they going to get out of this so i liked that it took turns that i was not expecting mm-hmm. it to take well obviously it's got to be challenging to do you're playing opposite yourself for a majority of the show uh and i can only you know kind of only imagine the complications and just the choreography of that but what was the most unexpected challenge that you didn't anticipate well going into it even though it's a convention that we've seen before, I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I didn't know exactly how people do it. I, um, I asked Sam Rockwell, who I've known for a while. and uh, Sammy Rock. And Sammy Rock. And so before it started, I called Sam and said, hey, man, when you did Moon, how did you do scenes with yourself? And, uh, and so... I, you know, with him, he said, well, it's, oftentimes it'd be an acting double in the scene and then he'd go around and then shoot his version. And, and, and I, I think that for us on our show, what tended to work the best was to not do that. And I wound up doing it just on my own and imagining myself across the, you know, across from me in the scene. So I would record the lines for both characters whatever character was driving the scene is the one that I would film first. But what became some of the most challenging aspects of that were in scenes when we would uh, show both characters in one frame and we could do like a a one-er instead of just over-the-shoulder kind of Mm -hmm. shots. And when that happened, I had to establish the scene as the first character and then really study the take. Once we landed on a take that we liked that was usable, 
I would have to watch what I had done and pay attention to the move, the moves I was making and on what lines, because when I had to then do the opposite character, my eye lines had to follow where I went and what I was doing. And so then it became choreography and I was acting opposite myself, even though I wasn't in the scene, but then listening to the lines I recorded in an earwig in my ear. And, uh, and over time, you know, I felt as if I was getting in the zone. We were able to do those things a little bit quicker, but there were technical aspects that just took some getting used to. Uh, eye lines were always tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at myself, uh, not just the eye line, but making it seem as if I'm looking four feet in front of me as opposed to 20 feet in mm-hmm. front of me. I couldn't just put a tape right. and mark on a wall to make sure that my eyes were going in the right direction. It kind of had to fuzz them out at four feet in front of me because it, it, your eyes look different when you're looking four feet in front of you mm-hmm. than as opposed to 20. So these kinds of things were things that we uh, kind of discovered along the way and refined and uh, and that was that was some of the trickiest stuff. And what about the two directors? The two directors are this great married couple, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who most people know or heard of for the first time when Little Miss Sunshine mm-hmm. came out. They, that was their first film, and they have since made several great movies and really interesting, uh, you know, music videos. They're award-winning mm-hmm. directors, but they're such artists. And they were the people, actually, that I thought of when I read these scripts. I thought, God, it would be so great if Dayton and Ferris could direct these. Um, And I'm just so thrilled that they did. And they directed all of them, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, also a unique thing. Because it felt like we were making a four-hour movie, really. We had one writer, two directors, and Netflix was great and supportive and let uh i think tim and and john and val make the show they wanted to make and you know and it's weird anna meredith this great musician put Mm -hmm. you know the score and it's kind of incongruous with some of the action you're watching it creates this its own feel um and that's also very john and val they're so so music yeah, the dance yeah. sequences out of nowhere. I yeah, and I mean, that. we spent a lot of time. What's what's the what's the music that we should use for that? You know, music is such a huge part of there, and they come from music and, and videos mm-hmm. and MTV and uh, and so we spent a lot of time talking about that kind of thing. And and I loved working with them. They're they are lovely people first and foremost. They're just uh. In, it, incredible people to be around and they're artistic they're passionate about what they're doing and they're just super cool and they're also so respectful of one another as in a working environment i Mm -hmm. never heard the other uh finish the other sentence they never interrupted one another when one person was speaking and i was really impressed with not only their ability and talent but their uh the way they work and the, and the respect they have for one another while they're working mm-hmm. they they seem to me to be what we would strive for as if anybody wants to be a director we try and attain what they do mm-hmm. and then 
in a marriage or any kind of yeah. relationship, try and attain that. <laughs> All I thought about during the entire shoot was, boy, their their kids are so lucky yeah. that they get them as their parents. Well, we don't know how they are. I mean, come on. Don't make me feel that bad. I mean, <laughs> no, maybe, I know how they are. Maybe yeah. after the take, it's sure. a little uh, bit more. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I did say this once to them, and they said, oh, my gosh, you should have seen us as soon as we would get home. But they spend <laughs> all of their time together. And I yeah. don't think, I don't think you can fake that. They are, uh, they're a good match. Uh-huh. They're a good match in... It just in life, but they're you know they're a really good match as a directorial as a team. Yeah. All right, I want to ask you about two scenes. Okay. So the one is comes very early when you are buried alive in plastic. How did you get through that scene? That was awful to do. It, it was, <laughs> How many takes on it? We had to do a lot because the other thing that happens with this show is that you see the same scene several times from different perspectives. Uh-huh. So, you know. We shot that, and that's in episode one. But then again, that shows up again in like episode four or something or five or something like that from a different perspective. So we had to shoot it from different angles. And uh, it, 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 I remember reading it for the first time thinking, well, this is a, a really great way, uh, attention-grabbing way to start a show. What a cool sequence. But not really thinking what that would be like to film it. And it wasn't until I showed up and saw my grave dug <laughs> and um i'm dressed in a diaper and it's cold out and there's a there was a straw a plastic straw that had or tube really that had been buried underneath the ground and was sticking out in the grave and i said well what's that and they said well you need to um put your mouth over that so that you can breathe like a snorkel because we're going to have to bury you that was the first time i thought oh yeah Oh, this is going to be bad. And <laughs> when, uh, and I also was also wrapped in plastic. So um, when we were doing it, there was a natural instinct that kicked in that was a unique experience. And that natural instinct says, This is wrong. I don't like this. And it isn't even, uh, you feel claustrophobic for sure. But even if you're not claustrophobic, this is an uncomfortable thing mm-hmm. to do. And uh, I couldn't wait to get that day of filming over with. And we had to do it a lot of times. And each time it was, I didn't, you get a little more used to it, but never so used to it that um, it, that it's fun. <laughs> and it, But at the same time, the way that we were trying to shoot it when I emerge so that the bag is... Uh, wrapped around my face and I'm screaming and it almost looks like a, you know, a birth uh, and terrifying. Mm-hmm. It, there were a lot of other, there were a lot of components that had to kind of work together. And if we didn't get them, we had to do it again. And I wanted to do it again because I wanted the shot to look really creepy. And they did too, but they felt so bad. <laughs> they, everybody was really, yeah, I thought about really that. apologetic. <laughs> Um, all right, my other favorite scene, which is really not a question, I just have to say I loved it, is when the clone, when the clone Miles became normal Miles, mm-hmm. and he's trying to act like depressed Miles, was so good, and I imagine that that would have been a lot of kind of fun to yeah. play when he's like, "Ha, oh, honey, I'm home," like trying to trying Slip to be into normal. the old Miles skin. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it was it's such a great scene. One of the fun yeah. things about attempting these different 
roles was the differences had to be minimal. So much so that if, you know, somebody ran into the new version or the old version, they wouldn't be so confused as to think that they were different people. And to kind of figure out what those changes were, what the nuances were that would differentiate the two was a, a an actor's dream. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really fun, it's fun to start digging into that. Yeah. Well, and and then to, yeah, get to play the new guy, pretending to be the old the guy. guy. And it's, <laughs> so it's, good. It, it gets a little confusing. Yeah, but it gets fun. It's very fun to watch. Um, all right. Let's just talk about your career because it is kind of... It's so unique. I read in the New York Times, which I loved this like avatar of averageness, like how you can be the every guy and anything and everything. We believe you in whatever you're doing. You can be the the clone. You can be the senator. You could be the mailman. You can be the love interest. We believe Paul Rudd in anything he does. And I, of course, remember Josh from Clueless as I can't wait. I mean, I'm sure... That movie holds up still. I love it. It's a it's a classic. <laughs> it's some people's Gone with the Wind. Uh, and you worked with all these great auteurs, right? And then you get discovered or somehow your path collides with Judd Apatow. Mm-hmm. And you're in all those comedies. And then somehow in your 40s, you become a Marvel hero. It's like it's surreal. outrageous. It's yeah. so surreal. Uh-huh. I mean, how do you, and obviously you didn't, no one plans any of this stuff. That's the crazy thing about life in general, but especially about Hollywood. Right. But take me through a little bit about that moment meeting Judd. Let's just start with him. And I remember when Vanity Fair, when I made you be Tom Ford in a photo shoot. And then <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with those guys. I was the lucky one. I got to wear the suit. You got to wear the suit. And then we put you in a barrel on the cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of at the epicenter of that, that purity of your life. But yeah. It well working with Judd was great and is great. I actually saw him the other day. Um, that came about, and where I met him was uh, right uh, during Anchorman. Anchorman was a script that I read. It was not set up anywhere, but it was the rare instance where I read a comedy, I read a script that was so funny. I just wanted to keep the script around to reread just for sheer pleasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was daring and I hadn't read anything like that. And, you know, the, the, the talent of Adam McKay and Will Ferrell uh, and those two guys, they sharing the brain that they share uh, was, it, it was like, Somebody once said it's it's like a comedy savant. Mm-hmm. That's how good their writing is, mm-hmm. and I, that's the way I felt. So I uh, got to meet Judd because he was a producer on Anchorman, and I that was a part that I got. I uh, and and ever since then we you know we hit it off, um, and I think have a way of working. He ha- he works in a very specific way, and it's a way that I like to work. In a way that I kind of started working on Anchorman because McKay likes to work this way too, which is uh, very free form. And with Judd, that's a guy who I think thinks of the stories that he's writing or the movies that he's making and the characters that he's building as dramatic, ultimately. 
And even though, you know, comedy is the default and the way he gets through life and the way he sees things and he's naturally funny, you know, he wants the human behavior and the, uh, he wants the characters empathetic and relatable. And I think that I, uh, am in sync with him on that. So we've enjoyed working together. Uh, and, and I was fortunate enough to get to work with the guy several times and, uh, and yeah. And then the Marvel stuff was really, uh, out of left field. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I think of you as Judd's cinematic avatar, basically. Like, you're the best version. <laughs> well, there were, <laughs> you know, there were times when we were doing stuff like Knocked Up or, or This Is 40, especially, where I am acting opposite his wife, playing her husband, uh, and his two daughters, playing their father. And the real guy is just off camera <laughs> orchestrating the scene. And I'm thinking, well, this is some of the most expensive therapy this guy is putting himself through. Uh, what what kind of psychological experiment is this? And what kind of toll is it taking on the rest of his family? I know it's so. Funny. It was a weird. It's yeah, you, a weird experience. And you look at some of those images, and it's like, is that Judd? Oh no, that's Paul. Because you're in the kitchen, and you know some of the still photos there, of that when you go online. When it's very I first. Funny. When I first really connected with Judd, and this was before Anchorman, it was, um, I was at a dinner, you know, uh, Freaks, he had, I think he had done Freaks and Geeks. Mm-hmm. And I was at a dinner and I was talking about fake names and how fake names, a really good fake name is a work of art. It's, you don't want to get too silly, but you don't want to get too banal. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Anyway, I said one of the great fake names was Gern Blanston, which was a reference from an old Steve Martin routine. And somebody at the dinner table said, Gern Blanston? Oh, my God. That ex- what is that? I said, it's from Steve Martin record. And they said, that explains Judd Apatow's email address. And I uh, said, uh, oh, wow. Oh, great. He knows that. Anyway, I went back and home that night and emailed him and said, hey, uh, we don't know each other, but I just wanted to say, nice pull on the email address. And then he wrote me back. At that point, I had really, you know, he, he said, oh, you're the guy that does those Neil Butte plays. Uh-huh. And uh, we started emailing each other. And the emails were funny, but we became pen pals in a way. So that when I met him on Anchorman, it felt as if I was meeting a pen pal. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that, you know, we, Judd and I are of the same generation. And I find for a lot of people from uh, my age, and certainly people that have gone into comedy, those um, Steve Martin records were required listening. And they had a huge impact on a generation of people and Judd and I shared that and I think that's probably one of the things of uh, why we tend to mm-hmm. like a lot of the same stuff see things in a mm-hmm. similar way and uh, and like working with mm-hmm. one another yeah so 
Ant Man, <laughs> you're in your 40s and you get this, you get called up basically. Right. It, it, that's what it feels like from the outside. It's what, when, when an actor of your caliber is like, oh, they're getting called up to Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, that originally that was d- going to be directed by Edgar Wright, mm-hmm. who uh, offered me the part. And Edgar was, is a friend of mine. And mm-hmm. so uh, I was really excited about the opportunity to try something totally new, to work with Edgar, to work with Marvel. Um, obviously Edgar eventually left the project mm-hmm. and, uh, and Peyton Reed mm-hmm. came on and uh, Peyton, I also had known and is a great guy and a great director. And, um, it, it and it's, it, it, it feels a little bit like a Forrest Gump kind of thing that's happened in my career, which is I have found myself standing a little bit like even briefly working on friends. I, I'm in this group, um, that is really well known. How did I get here and what am I doing standing on this uh, mark? <laughs> I shouldn't be here. So uh, there, there's, uh, there's been a real excitement and joy and unexpected um, journey, uh, m- moments on, on the journey. And you were saying, you know, you can't plan things out. And I can't and haven't been planned things out. The only thing you can do is try and do things or hope to do things that are important to oneself at at that time and have some kind of artistic uh, in, integrity or, or intre- interest. And um, nothing happens the way you think it's going to happen. So it's nice to take a left turn when you don't see it coming and think it's maybe not even an option and just go with it to see what happens. And, uh, I've, I've, I've taken a few, I've been afforded the opportunity Mm -hmm. to take a few left turns. Mm -hmm. Uh, how has the recognition been for you now? I mean, you, you kind of worry, you feel like someone that was able to wear a baseball hat and walk through New York, take a subway, go around in LA when you still do that. You still are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I live a regular life. I, that's a really important, I think. Uh, but it's noticeably different for me now if I'm out after Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. It's also the first thing that I ever really did that kids watched. So that has changed. And there's no denying that uh, Marvel is enormous in every country in the world. I mean, it's it's a... It's amazing to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I don't think a day has gone by where I haven't walked down the street and somebody just yells out Ant-Man to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of all the movies that you've done for 25 plus years, and there's a lot of them, and, and the Neil the Butte reminds me of one of my favorite, uh, The Shape of Things, uh, one of your performances. But is there... One that's particularly dear to you or one that you wish more people would have seen? Oh, uh, you know, there some occupy spaces and that others don't. You know, Wet Hot American Summer was probably one of the most fun things to ever work on. Um, I Love You Man was really fun to work on. Obviously, Anchorman and getting to work with those guys was a blast. Uh, there's something sweet about the movie Our Idiot Brother, Mm-hmm. I, I love think that, that I like, um, and that movie was done by, uh, directed by a friend of mine named Jesse Peretz and, and a great director. 
We had done another movie that was completely improvised. I did it with Romney Malco before uh, we did 40-Year-Old Virgin, but this movie called The Chateau that two people have seen. <laughs> and it's you know, we shot it on camcorders. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, uh, but there's like- Camcorder. Camcorders. Oh, that's such a throwback. Yeah, like with the thing, the thing that would flip out. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so it looks like it was shot on camcorders, but it was with an all French cast, and there was, there was, it was a really fun kind of dogma-like experience without a script, and, um, and I think it has some really sweet mm-hmm. and funny moments in it, but, uh, yeah, they're all, they're all kind of individual experiences, and I don't have, I don't have any movie that I think, oh, I wish people would see that. I just don't have that kind of relationship with any of the films I've ever worked on. Uh, once I kind of do them, I, I, I move on. But, mm-hmm. uh, but as life experiences, I've had many that have just been incredible. And, you know, generally you'd take a few months to work on anything. And, and sometimes it's a really cool location with just great people. And sometimes the material is challenging and, and, uh, and exhilarating. And, uh, you know, other times there are those ones you work on and a couple weeks in, you think, well, head down, move forward. This thing's going to be done in about six weeks. Just ride it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had a few of those too. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems inevitable in a, in a career. The odds, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've ever gone into, with the exception of maybe two things, that uh, you know were not one hundred percent artistic choices. What two or three, maybe three things that I, you know, and and when. That's really important to me that I really love what I'm working on and think this could be really great to do something just for the sake of doing something or if it's a job because I need to pay my rent, uh, which I've had those jobs. Um, I get super, super depressed and uh, and I always say, well, never again. I, it's not worth it. I care too much about what it is uh, that I'm working on. You could look at a lot of the stuff I've done and might you might be shocked by that answer, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I like so. I mean, I, I feel like we were just saying I've seen a lot of you at Sundance over the years when, when I was there. I mean, I feel like I've been at, was it that festival, 20 straight years yeah. in a row, basically, barring being pregnant or not. Um, and one of those weird I loved it movies was a Prince Avalanche is that am I saying Prince, that right Prince Avalanche yeah god with the guys that made the yellow it was just so Painted original the lines and the never the think about the people that paint the lines in the road and that's so what I mean by of course Paul Rudd can play the guy that that's part of that and make this yeah. whole story around that that was da- uh, David Gordon Green directed it is based on an Icelandic film and th- I love that movie and that movie was both David and I uh, talked about it. We wanted to go do it because it was a, in a way, a reaction to working within a big studio system. We thought, let's just go do something for us that, you know, who knows if anybody will ever see it. But it's a completely artistic endeavor, mm-hmm. and uh, I I loved working on it. I love working with David, and um, 
And that's the case. You are one of the 10 people that saw yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am one of the 10. It's all right. Maybe, maybe they could find it. There'll be more. Um, all right. What was more impressive to your teenage kids, like dad being in Marvel or dad doing Hot Ones? Oh, uh, I think that's a tie because my kids love Marvel and they're really, they get a kick out of the fact that I'm in it. Yeah. But boy, do they love Hot Ones. Mm-hmm. You know, I... I had seen some episodes of Hot Ones, but my son is 15, and then he turned my daughter onto it, and she's 10, and they've watched a bunch of them. And so when I did Hot Ones, it was my kids were really, really excited about it. They would always say, "Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it?" And when I was when I got to do it, they would say, "So next week, that's when you're going on. That's when." I brought all of the bottles of uh, hot sauce home. Uh, because I knew my son would want to try them. And he and his a buddy of his came over to the house and they they did it. They did their own Hot Ones challenge and it took my kid down for about three days. He couldn't, <laughs> he, he felt awful for three days. He also drank a ton of milk. Yeah, you didn't do any it. of that. I didn't drink any milk or any water. Yeah. And I, I was I, <laughs> I was surprised by that. I wasn't expecting it. But um but yeah, he my my kid drank a ton of it and I don't think that did him any favors. Yeah. Well, I should say for all our listeners that don't know, um, A Comrade in Arms, an amazing interview, was hugely popular show on YouTube, Hot Ones. Sean Evans, he's uh incredible at what he does and he's created this this, uh, like, I don't know, I guess you could say it's a talk show, but basically where every every step of the way you have to eat something with a hotter sauce as it gets keeps going all mm-hmm. the way up. And you you got the most red on, what was it, the bomb or something. Bomb. Your cheeks started to get red. But you- uh, the bomb. That's the one <laughs> that seems to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. Uh, it sucks. <laughs> it's really, really intense. And that was, that was the one that, um, kind of threw me for a loop mm-hmm. because it doesn't, it doesn't subside. The heat doesn't go away. Normally, you know, you, you, if it's like, you know, how you stub your toe and it's fine for a second and you know, it's going to be in about two seconds. The pain is going to get to your brain and it's really going to hurt, but then you're going to, press on that on your toe with your other foot and you're going to you're, you're going to ride it out for about 10 seconds and then it's going to ease up a little bit uh this was that but it doesn't ease up it it's like restubbing it mm-hmm. and so uh with each breath it just gets hotter and hotter and i think that's what uh buckles people mm-hmm. now your kids are they artistically inclined as, as yeah. well. I mean, I know your wife, uh, Julie, she's a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are. They are. But yeah, I think music and um, dancing and my, you know, my daughter loves dance and gymnastics and my son loves music and um, they're, they're both artistic kids. Yeah. Do you have a karaoke machine at home? I do. You do? I do. Yeah. I have a, a, a whole setup in the basement of my house and, uh, and I've had many karaoke parties. Hmm. What's What's your best showing? You mean my go-to? Yeah. Like, well, what's your re- what's the one when you feel like Miles the clone? Like, which is one when you feel like you're just uh, crushing on all levels? Like- uh, boy, it. You know what? It really. 
It really depends on who's there. Mm, so it's performance-based. <laughs> because <laughs> it, there's not one song that, uh, it's like, all right, this is my go-to song. Sometimes you gotta, you got to read the room, I think. I tend to like to, I like to go for really strange, deep cuts. Um, uh, lately, it's a song called Patches, <laughs> which is probably not, a, an appropriate song for me to sing, but it's a great song. Um, and then there's uh, When the Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash is a mm. good, strange song. But then, uh, oh God, I always was, I always loved Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. That's a great song. But then you can throw on a survivor song that mm. somehow uh, rallies the room. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Oh, Survivor's so good, so good. I, <laughs> I love anything by the Bee Gees. Bee Gees are Bee Gees are an incredible band, and one that I feel like they don't get the props in a way that they should. I'm a. I think Barry Gibb is one of the great songwriters of all time. He's an incredible songwriter, and. You know, once he kind of went into that the falsetto, and then that became their sound. In a way, I think some people might even look at them, even though they're beloved. It's almost like a gimmick there, and that's it. They're they weren't. They were, they were amazing. Their harmonies were incredible. The album, main course, that album. Mm-hmm. Oh. I mean, Paul Rudd, you and I are in complete agreement. Yeah. Um, I think Saturday Night Fever is still one of the best albums of all time. Of all time. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's as far as a soundtrack album, I mean, what's better than that, r- really? I can't think of anything. It's so good. I mean, I wish I could just sing like Barry Gibb. I can't. I don't mm-hmm. have that skills. But I'm, I'm, I'm feeling you in the performative space might be might be pretty good. I can't do the the Barry Gibb falsetto. You can't? No. I actually think, though, that Robin is the probably even more difficult to sing. Mm-hmm. You try and get a little Fanny B. Tender out in that range, that's no, that's no easy task. <laughs> you know, I've heard about this, like, pub situation you have in your house. Yeah. It's legendary. It's like, it's like a whole... It's a whole pub. It's a, yeah. it's a fully functioning um, Irish pub in my house. That's where I have the karaoke mm-hmm. system. Yeah. And that's from the, the kind of cross the pond roots i guess a little bit yeah and i just i just uh you know my dad did it my dad built a pub in his house for my kid and that's what started it and there's something great about having a pub in your house even if you don't drink i mean it's just such a social hang and if it's uh you know it's built like it's not a basement bar but instead a, a house built over this pub that is existing irish pub uh it's cool because you don't expect to be in that setting in a in a somebody's home. It's one of the great things in my life. <laughs> I love that's it. not an exaggeration. It's really fun. Did you name it? Does it have a name? It does. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. It does have yeah. a name. It does have a name that you're not gonna tell me. Um, I'm keeping that one to myself. Yeah, I, I, I'll <laughs> let you have that. I, I understand that, you know, privacy of that. But, um, well, it's great seeing you. It's great to see you. I always you. love chatting with you, you catching too. up. Appreciate Congrats it. on all of it. It's just such, so much monster success. It's awesome.
thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day <laughs> to talk to me and let me talk about myself yeah. for my new show, Talking About Myself. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. Living With Yourself is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.